We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. At Rockwall Prez, our mission statement is to be transformed by the cross, to grow in community, and to cultivate our hearts, to love God, and to love others. That's a pretty good summary of the New Testament as a whole. But we've chosen each of those images or those metaphors because they particularly communicate something that we're trying to do as a church to embody and live out those priorities in our mission statement. And so what we're doing this fall is taking each of those images, cross, community, and cultivate, and spending two weeks on each. The first week, we'll consider the teachings of Jesus. The second week, we'll consider the teachings of an epistle. And so this is the second week on cross, and we'll be considering the teachings uh, of Peter in his first letter. And by cross, at the beginning, we should ask what we mean, because cross could, of course, be construed to mean quite a number of different things. But what we're trying to capture in the notion of the cross, that the cross, being, um, being the revelation of God's victory, really turns everything upside down, does it not? From a, from a worldly perspective, if you place yourself in the shoes of a Roman citizen in the first century, and you look at the cross, what do you see? You see failure. If this was God's agenda at victory, then it's been a miserable and complete uh, failure as concerning what it, whatever it was intended to accomplish. Because Jesus has died a criminal's death outside the gates of his city and cannot be counted as a king in any sense. But from God's perspective, it is the cosmic victory over sin and death. It is the renewal of all creation. And so we understand that these two, these two viewpoints or perspectives 
are radically opposed to one another. And the New Testament tells us that when we come to faith in Jesus and understand, we make that switch from seeing the cross as folly or as a stumbling block or as foolishness, and we see it as God's victory, right? This is representative of the Spirit coming upon us and enabling us to see. Until that happens, we're blind. Until that happens, we're deaf. Until that happens, we don't understand the world rightly as God intends. And so when we talk about the cross, we're talking about that transition, that our eyes and our mind are being transformed to come to understand the world and people and God as he intends for all of those things to be understood. And this, of course, begins with our mind. Last week, we considered Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We also pointed out that both when John the Baptist and Jesus come on the scene, they say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And repentance means, first and foremost, a changing of one's mind. Right? Paul will put it this way, that our minds must be transformed. They must be renewed as we consider the truths of the gospel. And so this is going to be in Peter's agenda as well. Right? You see in verse 13, he begins by saying, prepare your minds for action. Now we're going to come back to that. Right? But this is Peter's agenda as well, that in order to understand and actually walk as a disciple of Jesus, you had better see things the way that God intends you to see them. And it's always a good question. It's a good question to ask every day. Am I seeing things how God wants me to see them? Or am I seeing them how I have a tendency to see them? Or how I've trained to, be, to see them? Or how my culture has taught me to see them? Because the answers to those questions are radically different. And if you don't know the difference between clarity of sight then you're always going to find yourself walking in circles. Right? You're going to find yourself not being able to find a distinct way forward. Now, the way Peter's going to present this to us this morning in this passage, the passage is incredibly dense, and by no means can we consider it all, but there are three landmark exhortations or challenges that Peter offers to the churches, and we're going to consider each of those in turn. Number one is hope, number two is holiness, and number three is fear. All of these things, Peter's describing what is necessary for the churches to be committed to, right? If truly they see things clearly, this will be true of them, and this is what marks out true discipleship. So as we go, be thinking, do I exhibit hope, and is my hope in the right place? Do, am I committed to holiness or obedience, and am I afraid, right? Do I actually have some fear of God? Because Peter says it's necessary to walk in faithfulness. We'll begin with hope. You can look at verse 13 and halfway through there. Peter says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now of each of these, hope, holiness, and fear, we're just going to ask two questions. Why is this important and what difference does it make in our lives? So when we consider hope, Peter is saying um, the, the language is strong. When he says set your hope fully, it means without reservation. It means your hope doesn't go anywhere else. It means your hope exclusively lands on the grace that is to be revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. Right? So why is this important? Well, from Peter's perspective, what he's been talking about really in all of chapter 1 is God's mercy, is God's salvation. He's just got done saying the prophets longed to understand what they were writing about. The angels longed to look into the time established in which God will render his mercy to you. But you churches live in a privileged time because you live in a place where you understand what it means for God's mercy to, to be put on display in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And having seen God's mercy, 
why would you put your hope somewhere else? If you've known God's love, that he would sacrifice his son to redeem you and to restore all things, then why would you put your hope anywhere else? Uh, there is only one source of salvation. Therefore, Peter is saying there is only one logical place for your hope to exist. And if it exists anywhere else, you'll be disappointed. Okay, all well and good. What difference does that make? To really place your hope exclusively, fully, on the grace that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. Understand that hope always directs our path. Wherever we're going in life, we look forward and we might set some goal or achievement in front of us. But we don't necessarily strive simply for the goal or achievement itself, but for what we hope comes with that goal or achievement, right? I pursue good grades in high school, and I set myself the course of graduating in good standing from college. Why? Just because I get a piece of paper? No, my hope is that this will ensure a good job with a good salary for me and an ability to provide for a future family that I also hope to have, right? And therefore, the hope of what comes with that is what drives me forward and what keeps me uh, on a certain course. If my hope then is set fully on Christ, then all of the course of my life, both its direction and the priorities that are involved in that direction are going to be affiliated with the kingdom. So, what question should you be asking of yourself? When I look at my life, its course and its priorities, does it really reveal a hope that is set on Christ? Or, does it really reveal that I've got lots of bank accounts of hope and I've kind of broken it down into a, a 25, 25, 25, 25, I've spread my hope around just to make sure that I have some return on my investment because hoping on Jesus exclusively feels a little bit precarious at times, doesn't it? Or we might feel like, well, is Jesus really coming back? Or why did Jesus leave us here in the first place? Or is Jesus really going to be present with me in the midst of his absence? And suddenly I start to falter in terms of my hope. Right? It becomes hard sometimes to hope on that when we feel like it's insecure. And therefore my hope is going to be placed in, uh, in other things. It gets diverted elsewhere. And those are good and valid questions with which we might struggle. I mean, I, frankly, I think it's impossible to be a disciple and not struggle with those questions. So I think they're quite normal. To look at the same notion from a little bit different perspective, right? imagine dropping off a child at sleepaway camp for a week for the first time. The child looks around and realizes he doesn't know anybody. And the child looks at you with tears in his eyes and says, are you seriously going to drive away and leave me here? And begins panicking and bawling and you, uh, you give a last hug and jump in the car and drive away excited for a week without your child. Now, you can do that because you're relatively confident, what? That at the end of that week, your child is going to grow. They're going to go through maturing experiences. They're going to learn what it means to be independent for a week. They're going to come back, right, in a different place than when you left them. And in that same sense, Scripture holds out clearly that there's a maturing. There's a growing that we do in the midst of uh, Jesus' physical absence, right? It's living in this hope and remaining faithful in the hope that we actually mature and grow and develop as his believers. But if our hope right, falters in the midst of that, realize that inevitably your faithfulness will be uh, negotiated. Right? So if I'm 
if I'm uh, going through high school and I want to be a great baseball player and I train and sacrifice and do all the due diligence to be that, but then somebody moves to town and displaces me as the best player in town, right? My hope no longer feels secure in that identity. And so I start looking, well, maybe I should branch out a little bit and diversify my portfolio. And that girl, right, Susie, who just moved to town is super cute. I'm thinking my portfolio would be diversified in a great way if she was my girlfriend. And so I start dating Susie, right? And as a result of that, I now have hope in that relationship. I still have some hope in baseball, but a lot of hope in this relationship as well, right? And so uh, the, the point of the analogy is, at this point, how serious am I about baseball? Am I going to make as many training sessions? Am I going to be as serious about my diet? No, you know, I'm going to be serious about spending time with Susie at the same time. Right? The point being, to the degree that you, you spread your hope around, right, your faithfulness and obedience will diminish. Right? Just like the, it's inevitable. Right? Your hope will always drive your commitment and what you are invested in. And this is perhaps exactly Peter's thinking because he moves on directly to the notion of obedience. His second exhortation is holiness. First hope and now holiness. If you look at verses 15 and 16, Peter will write it and then he'll quote from Leviticus saying the same thing. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Why is this important? Well, from Peter's perspective, it's important that you be holy because God is holy. Right? You are called to be his image bearer, and therefore if he is holy, you must bear the image of holiness, and if you fail in that, then you fail to be an image bearer of God who is holy. In that sense, it is indeed perhaps primarily what we are called to. Now, we might think, well, that just sounds like a whole lot of work and rules, and I'm not so excited about that. Right? It, you might miss that it's really an invitation to life in the midst of that. In fact, Peter is holding out to the churches to whom he's writing, not just, I want you to be holy so that right, you're in good standing and you're not going to be punished. What he's saying to the churches is, listen, you have an option here. You can pursue holiness, which is freedom, or you can live the way you used to live right, and be a bondservant. Now, how do we, how do we see that? Look at verse 14. Right before he's leading into his exhortation of holiness, he says, Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What are the passions of your former ignorance? Well, we get this idea a little bit more fleshed out uh, in verse 18 when Peter also writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, Peter's writing to Gentile churches Right, it's the first century. He says, listen, don't return to the passions of your ignorance. Right, and don't return or live in the futile ways of your forefathers. You've been ransomed from them. You've been rescued from them. Now, this word ransom right, is to be freed. It's the notion of, you know, in the ancient world, lots of people were some kind of indentured servant. Right? They're owned in that sense. But you could be ransomed. Someone could come in and say, I want to redeem this person. You see Boaz do this with Ruth. He's a kinsman redeemer. Comes in and says, I have the right to redeem Ruth and I'm willing to pay the price to redeem her from your possession. And he does so and Ruth becomes his wife. Right? And God, or Peter is writing that God has done this right, through Jesus. We have, you have been ransomed, churches, to pursue holiness. Now the alternative to holiness is one. 
living in the passions of your ignorance and the futile ways of your forefathers. Now, in the first century, essentially that Peter's saying, listen, you came from worshiping at the temple of Artemis. Don't do that anymore. Or you uh, worshiped at the temple of Diana and all the debauchery that went with it. Don't do that anymore. But to us, right, he wouldn't necessarily say that. Maybe some of you came from a different religion and that would be appropriate. But for us, I think it would often be, uh, you know, moving beyond something, um, you know, whatever informed your life and gave you identity prior to coming to Jesus. So some of you, it could be all sorts of things, but Peter might write today, hey, don't return to uh, your former ways. Don't return to your drugs. Don't return to your alcohol. Don't return to boys or to girls, right? And these things. Don't, don't return to self-righteousness. Don't return to being a narcissistic, prideful, obnoxious person, right? Whatever was defining your life, Peter says you're now ransomed from that, from those passions of ignorance, to live free from that. Don't establish that in, in that fashion any longer. And to really think about this, right, let me invite you to go much deeper than the surface level treatment we often give these sorts of questions. And to think, what really, what are the ways that informed your life, and even to this day inform your life? And by that I mean something like this. I have a, a very good friend, a very close friend, who who grew up in a bit of a, I'm in a hard house. Um, his dad uh, liked women a lot, and eventually his parents would divorce. He was fairly young. And he became both kind of the, the friend to his mother and the parent to his siblings that were left at home. And so he, he played this role as, uh, as he grew up, and, um, it, which is a lot for a young boy to carry. And so as he grows older, he eventually develops this notion that the way I handle all this stress and all this pressure is to pursue outlets of fun. I'm going to go enjoy a good meal or hang out with friends or do something exciting or go to an exotic trip, so on and so forth. And this is how he handles it. But as he grows, right, he actually enters ministry and is in many ways a great pastor. But even in the midst of that, right, he has an aversion to conflict he doesn't like to have hard conversations, and he still really likes to make sure that he's in the presence of everything that is fun that's going on. And often, if he might have responsibility A, he will prefer to go do fun thing B and ignore that responsibility. And that's one of the ways, right, in the former passions of his ignorance, he learned to navigate life. So for you, as you were growing up and going through whatever you had to navigate, what were the ways in which you learned to navigate life? And how do those things now prevent you from pursuing holiness? Right? When my friend now chooses fun, rather than choosing to identify with Jesus and Jesus' people in the moment of suffering or hardship or trial, he's not being obedient. And he's not pursuing holiness. Therefore, according to Peter, he's not experiencing freedom. He remains trapped in the futile ways of his forefathers, the way he learned to navigate life, apart from the direction and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And in that, he will always be a bondservant until he lays that down and says, no, fun is okay sometimes, but I also I have to identify with the man of sorrows, and I have to be willing to bear one another's burdens, and I have to be willing to weep with those who weep. And when that happens, he starts to become free. And this is what really is, you know, when we talk about a deep pursuit of holiness, we're talking, right, all of us want to say, well, 
We, don't, we lay down all the gross, I'm not doing drugs, I'm not drunk, I'm not looking at things I shouldn't. All of that's important. I'm not, I'm not trying to just brush it off the table. But if you stop there, you're not getting that close to holiness because you've got a whole lot of passions of ignorance and a whole lot of futile ways of your forefathers that you've learned over a very long period of time unless you begin unlearning them in order to move toward Christ in obedience, right? And this is what it both is putting away the old self and dying to self, right? This is what we're talking about. Until that happens, you don't really know the freedom of holiness. That's Paul's second challenge, or Paul. We've been in Paul too long. Uh, Peter's second challenge. Peter's third challenge comes uh, with something we don't necessarily talk about very much, but it's pretty important, at least from Peter's perspective, and that is fear. If you look at verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I love it that Peter calls our time the time of exile, right? You, so often we think, oh, life is great. We live in a great place. We live in a rich country. We have most of our needs met. All is well and good. We, it's almost as if we pretend heaven has come to earth. And Peter says, no, until Jesus comes back, you're in a state of exile. You're just like uh, Israel living in Babylon. You are living under a hostile power that is running things and you have been called to be faithful in the midst of that hostility. And if you don't figure that out, you're never going to actually be living the right way or living in a way that brings joy. And part of that is indeed fear. Why is this important to Peter? Why is fear important? First of all, he says that God is the impartial judge. Right? He's going to judge. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every passage that gives any glimpse of final judgment at the end of time in the New Testament says that those people who stand before the judgment seat of Christ, those people, which is everybody, are judged on what? Works. Right? Which is why we, saved, we, we say that we are saved by faith, and we also say that if your faith has no works, it's no faith at all. Right? This is the reality of, of we will have to give account before the living God of that which we've done, before the impartial judge. And that, uh, that makes me shake a little bit when I start to think about what might be involved in that and how I might have certain regrets on that day. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says, not only is God impartial judge, but he's also ransomed you with the most expensive thing in the history of the world. Right? Not with something perishable. He says, not silver or gold, you know, as if. But what? With the precious blood of Christ. That Jesus' blood has been spilled so that you might be freed from being a bondservant to sin and death. And that you might be made alive and come to see things correctly. Well, what difference does this make? I think it makes a big difference. Now, sometimes, you know, goodness, we live in the age that most, of all ages, I don't know of any age in the history of the church that least likes to talk about God's severity and judgment and fear. Right? But here's Peter saying, if you're going to be faithful, church, you had better take some level of fear before God seriously. And why is that important? Well, it's important in this sense. Um, we, uh, we sometimes go on vacation with our siblings, and uh, that's great, spending time with family. Sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating, and you may know what I'm talking about. Frustrating in the sense that we parent our children very differently. And so uh, we're hanging out, and the kids are acting in certain ways, and we start thinking, uh, man, uh, 
we started thinking what we would do to that child if that child was ours. But the child isn't ours, so you can't really go down that road very far. But there was a funny, funny moment one, one Christmas. There's um, one of the dads in our family. He, uh, he is notorious for not disciplining. He just, I think he really believes that if he ignores it long enough, it will go away. But one, one, Christmas, one Christmas morning, uh, his son was just kind of off the rails a bit. And he gets mad. And he, he's also the king of the, of, the, of the empty threat. Like, he'll say this massive threat, but he never carries through with any of them. So he go, it's like 11 a.m. Christmas morning. And he threatens his son. He says, I'm going to take all your Christmas presents back. And he is, he's just so mad. And what was funny was everyone laughed. Because like, everyone, including the son, who knows really, right? It's Christmas morning, and you're going to lead with that. Like, you'd have to be at DEF CON 5 to even actually be serious about something like that. And you never carry with, uh, out with anything, and you're certainly not going to carry that out. So it was just kind of a notion <laughs> that's kind of silly. Really, you should start with something much more manageable and actually carry through before you ramp up to that. Now, why did, why did everyone laugh? And why did his son laugh? Because there was no fear. Right? There was no, there was no, ex, it was an empty threat. There was no expectation of follow through. Therefore, his son's behavior didn't need to change. His heart didn't need to change because there was, there was not going to be any repercussion. And I think sometimes we think we're very sophisticated in our righteousness and holiness. And I think in many ways a much more fair perspective would be we're a lot like a disobedient child. And sometimes we need that reminder and the reality that there will be repercussions for our actions. Uh, and if there weren't, then we would continue to do them and not think twice about them. We're very prone to take God's grace for granted, which is why Peter says in this instance that fear is essential to obedience. So, so really a, a, an outstanding passage from all kinds of directions. But if we're all on the same page or close to it, right, Peter has leveled three exhortations through challenges to the church. Right? That you should have your hope fully set on Christ, that you should be committed to holiness, right, to be children of obedience, and then thirdly, that you would be fearful, that you would be honest that God will judge, that you will stand before that judgment, and understanding that if, um, gosh, there's this holy holy reverence or holy fear. Um, it's almost like, you know, if you had a parent give up a kidney for a child and that child grows up and says, you know, and that child, you would think, always has a sense that I am still alive because of the grace and kindness of my parent, right? And so there's a respect that is due in that capacity. And so it is with God. You are still alive and still breathing because he has given up his son for you because he has shed the precious blood of Jesus on your behalf. And so there must always be this holy reverence, this holy fear as a result of that gift. Now in all of this, I want us to go back to, to ask this question, how does Peter begin all this? He's given three huge charges to the church, which are monumental in actually embracing them and being a disciple of that capacity. But he begins in verse 13 by saying what? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And then he's off and running. In other words, for these three exhortations to occur, he begins by saying that your mind must be prepared for action. In the ancient world, 
uh, people wore tunics that came down at least to their knees and usually to their ankles. You've probably seen them in some depiction of biblical times. And when you were going to get busy uh, <laughs> working in the field or something, right, you would uh, pull up your tunic and tuck it into your belt. And this is where the phrase comes from, gird up your loins, which becomes an idiom which means essentially uh, prepare yourself for action, right? If you're going to go um, and do something, uh, some kind of work, agrarian work, right, you've got to gird up your loins and be prepared for that task. Now, the language here that Peter uses is literally gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, he's saying you have to actively prepare your mind to engage the action that I'm about to talk about, right? The hope, the holiness, and fear that must characterize you as a disciple. And part of this is making sure that you're very sober-minded. Now, sober-mindedness, of course, refers to alcohol in part, um, and that's very appropriate, right? Some of you would be embarrassed if somebody in the church went through your recyclables. And so for you, you have to be mindful that if you're being inundated with some substance and you can't think clearly, then you're not going to be able to move forward in these exhortations. But just like today, being sober-minded had a wide semantic range, by which I mean it meant um, being clear of thought. I mean, not having your mind distracted or um, oriented around something else that would prevent you from being very clear and very focused upon the appointed task. And so Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Make sure that you're not distracted. You're not looking at all kinds of, of different kinds of goals and hopes but instead to be very uh, focused so that you might engage the exhortations at hand. And this is, again, what we mean by, by cross. Peter is saying, listen, you've been redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Now it's time for your mind to be reoriented to him and the kingdom. And only as a result of that reorientation of mind do you begin to be able to say, oh, I, I start to see hope clearly. You know, this hope that I have that will be rich and financially secure, that might be a misplaced hope. Or this hope that my children will be the greatest children in the history of the world, that might be a misplaced hope. But the hope that Jesus would be manifest in my family and in my finances and that the kingdom would be extended through my labors and commitment to the church, that's a good hope. And it's when your mind is prepared for action and you start to think about holiness, right? What disobedience do you need to put away? What holiness do you need to aspire to? When you have a mind prepared for action, you begin to think about fear and think about in what ways can I be reverent before God and honor him. And in all of this, as Peter says, this is freedom. It's liberation. You know, I love, uh, love reading about the studies. Uh, it seems like they do one once a year now about who's the happiest country in, in the world. Right? I find these fascinating. There's entire books uh, written on some of these studies. And uh, for a while, it was always one of the uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, you know, it would be Norway or, or Sweden would win uh, the happiest country. And then a few years ago, they, they came out and said, yeah, but you know how medicated those countries are? And they started reporting the statistical use of things like antidepressants is massive, right? The majority of the country is medicated. So they said, well, we're going to put in some new rules and take them out. So who uh, pretty consistently ranks at the top of the happiest countries in the world is almost, uh, they almost have one characteristic in, in, um, in common, 
which is what? They're poor. And so, so behaviors start to think about this, and they say, this doesn't seem right. And you see Western scientists, they're, they're, you, you read their writing, and they're almost like, I'm going to get on a plane and tell them why they should be miserable, all the things that they're missing out on. But one thing that has distilled through all of this is this basic notion um, that has been empirically demonstrated over and over and over again, that the more options you have, the less happy you are. Right? And so when, it, when, you get, when you get up in the morning and have one option for breakfast, you don't, you don't have to go through the whole process of deciding, but you also don't have uh, what's called buyer's remorse. You don't spend time thinking about that you made the wrong decision on what you decided on. And so this actually produces a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety in the West. Right? We're always thinking about which option should I choose, and then after we make an option, we spend all this time thinking about, I made the wrong option. I should have made the other option. And we make ourselves fairly unhappy as, as a result. And this is, uh, I think, very much so what Peter's holding out for the churches is you can be liberated and free and much happier than you are. That will be the result, right? The result of what? Of limiting your hope, right? And being focused on holiness, right? And realizing, right? Being committed to a level of fear. In other words, having your mind prepared for the action of the kingdom, right? And saying no to lots of other things. Right. And in that, right, we understand what the cross is doing and how it's transforming us. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your grace to us, and we thank you for our redemption uh, through the cross. We thank you that you are making our minds new and helping us to see that the scales are falling from our eyes, that you are unstopping our ears, and that you are calling us to believe and to see in a new way. Would you please, Holy Spirit, strengthen us in this endeavor? Would you please help us to put our hope fully on the arrival of Christ? Would you help us to uh, be committed to holiness and, and see disobedience uh, for what it is, uh, for rubbish? And would you help us to, uh, to live in a holy and reverent fear, remembering that one day we will give account for every deed and every word? And remembering too, even as we come to your table this morning, uh, the ransom that has been paid, that we have been bought with a very valuable price indeed by the precious blood of Jesus himself, for which you give, we give thanks. Amen.